The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Okay. Well, obviously, people know for more than 80 years, those of us who have fought to transform the world have done so with the crippling legacy of Stalinism, distorting and demoralizing their efforts. The Stalinist regime that both arose out of and in complete negation to the victory of the Russian Revolution of 1917 was to shape and deform the workers' movement for decades to come. Out of the revolution's defeat, Stalin built a new form of capitalism that was crushing in its brutality. Internationally, mass revolutionary parties were transformed into instruments of Stalin's foreign policy. Those parties were forced to follow an ever-twisting and more tortuous line being directed from Moscow. Both the habits of deference that that built up as well as the, line, the directives themselves rendered these parties impotent. Faced with the huge challenges of fascism and a renewal of imperialist war, one by one they went down to defeat. Even today, the legacy of Stalinism casts its shadow. We are told that no fundamental alternative is possible because of any attempt to revolution inevitably leads to the gulag. Mm -hmm. um, but the important thing is that from the very beginnings of Stalin's rise, there was an alternative that sought to maintain the traditions of authentic revolutionary socialism. Um, and this, this alternative was represented and embodied by Trotsky and his followers, and it's the tradition in which the ISO stands today, and therefore I think why it's so important for us to have this discussion. It was a struggle that was hard, hard fought and marked by personal tragedies for Trotsky that mirrored the social tragedies of the working class, um, and not to be, you know, all personal or whatever, but it's worth saying, um, in this struggle, not one of Trotsky's children survived this terrible period. He had one daughter who died of tuberculosis in Russia when she was denied medical care by Stalin. Another committed suicide in Germany after not being allowed to come back to Russia where Stalin held her five-year-old daughter hostage. And both of his sons were killed by Stalin, including one who had never been political up until the 1930s when he joined in hunger strikes in the prison camps. Um, even his first wife, who was an oppositionist and was left to raise the grandchildren, was finally shot in the camps in the late 1930s. Not only Trotsky's family, but all the remnants of authentic Bolshevism were destroyed. These were not accidents of history, and they weren't the results of Stalin's own personal evil. The violence of the struggle represented a life and death struggle between two utterly opposed social programs. One, Trotsky's, based in the potential of the working class mm, to run society in its own interests. The other's based in the needs of a new ruling bureaucracy. Trotsky wrote in 1937, quote, the present purge draws between Bolshevism and Stalinism, not simply a bloody line, but a whole river of blood. The annihilation of all the older generation of Bolsheviks, an important part of the middle generation which participated in the Civil War, and that part of the youth that took up most seriously the Bolshevik traditions, shows not only a political, but a thoroughly physical incompatibility between Bolshevism and Stalinism. So the question for us is, how did Stalinism arise out of the Bolshevik experience? To answer this, you have to begin with the terrible conditions in which the revolution found itself. Sixteen imperialist armies invaded on the side of the counter-revolutionary elements of the old society. These white armies fought with all the barbarity of a minority ruling class attempting to preserve this rule. Anti-Semitism ran rampant where it had been nearly extinguished during the revolution. Jews were strung up from telephone poles. Women and children were murdered en masse. Despite being up against such brutal and well-armed forces, the Red Army, under Trotsky's leadership, won the Civil War by 1921. 
They could only win such a mismatched contest because they enjoyed the active support of the mass of workers, soldiers, and peasants. But they won the Civil War at a tremendous cost. At its end, national income was only one-third that of 1913. Industry produced less than one-fifth of pre-war levels. Railways were destroyed. Russians, Russia's cities and towns were literally depopulated, and hunger raged throughout the nation. The working class itself, which had formed the basis, the core of the revolution, um, had been decimated. The most political and class-conscious workers had volunteered in the Civil War where many of them died fighting the White Army. Um, those who did not return to fact those who did not die returned to factories that lay idle. Many were forced by hunger to return to the countryside and just fight for a bare survival. And immediately the Bolsheviks found themselves in conflict with the vast peasantry. These peasants had rallied behind the Bolsheviks in 1917 and supported the revolution because the Bolsheviks had held out an alliance between the peasantry and the working class um, based on the demands for land, peace, and bread. But their interests lay in a different direction, whereas the workers wanted to collectively um, take control of pr production and run it in society's interests, the peasants were introduced, in interested in the redistribution of the land into their own individual hands. The Bolsheviks had always recognized that this was a contradiction and believed that it could only be resolved through the spread of the revolution internationally. A revolution in more advanced Europe with its material abundance could give the revolution breathing space. But first, but the first, though not last, revolutionary upheavals in Europe had ended in defeat, and the ruling class had at least temporarily stabilized by 1921. I'm sorry for that. Um, so, um, uh, yeah. So during the Civil War, the Bolsheviks had been forced to requisition grain from the peasants to feed the army in the cities. And this had been greatly resented, but as long as they were united in fighting the white armies and against the counter-revolution, it could be sort of covered up. As soon as the Civil War ended, this conflict broke out into the open. Amongst the ruins of their victory, Russian society was being torn apart. And Isaac Deutscher, um, who wrote a great trilogy biography of Trotsky, um, wrote about the impact on society this. Seven years of world war, revolution, civil war, intervention, and war communism had wrought such changes in society that customary political notions, ideas, and slogans became almost meaningless. Russia's social structure had been not merely overturned, it was smashed and destroyed. The social classes which had so implacably and furiously wrestled with one another in the Civil War were all, with the partial exception of the peasantry, either exhausted or prostrate or pulverized. The first four years of the revolution took its toll on the Bolshevik party itself as well. The Bolsheviks had always risen and fallen as part of the working class of which it's formed its most advanced section, its vanguard. Um, they had been an influential but minority party until 1917, but had become a mass party between February and October of that year. And when the Soviets took power in October 1917, they did so with the Bolsheviks in the leadership, representing the active will of the majority of workers. They won this majority because they and they alone consistently and, um, advocated and fought for the interests of the working class soldiers and peasants. The Bolsheviks had never sought to rule in their own name when they came to power. However, they quickly came to rule in isolation as every single other party, including like the socialist parties, the moderates, every single one, went over to the side um, of the counter-revolution. At first, though, the Bolsheviks could still rely on the active participation of the working class, but as this class was destroyed, they increasingly came to rule in place of the workers. The party became isolated and came to rule above it. 
The Bolshevik party was also transformed internally. Many of its leading cadres were killed during the Civil War. Others were removed from the workplace and given positions of authority as commissars to try to run the new state. I'm in Deutscher described this impact. He said, proudly conscious of their origin, these proletarians turned commissars did not in fact belong to the working class any longer. With the passage of time, many of them became estranged from the workers and assimilated with the bureaucratic environment. At the height of the Civil War in 1919, 250,000 new members joined the party. Just to give a sense, like, I think they were like 17,000 or something like that at the beginning of the revolution. A quarter of a million new members joined. They joined in a spirit of self-sacrifice, many of them volunteered in the Red Army, where there was little to be gained. Nonetheless, they knew little of the history and program of the party. They, had, they joined under the impact of the revolution. Between 1919 and 1922, the party grew from a quarter of a million to 700,000, nearly a triple growth in membership in just a period of three years. But most of this growth by this point had become negative. People rushed to jump on board a winning train. Even many members who had been against the revolution, uh, not members, many members of society who had been against the revolution, jumped on board. By 1922, those Bolsheviks who had been members at the time of the February Revolution in 1917 were less than 3% of the party. The people who had built the party over decades actually became swamped in a much larger um, number of mem new members. And it was the, all of these conditions that laid the basis for the growth of the bureaucracy. Um, at the height of the Civil War, just to give you a sense of the scale of the bureaucracy, the number of state workers outnumbered industrial workers five to one, just in terms of a social weight. And it was this bureaucracy out of which Stalin would base his rise to power. But none of this was predetermined in 1921 and 1922. A series of struggles, both in Russia and internationally, over the course of the 1920s would take place before Stalin could finally consolidate power in 1928. Obviously, no one, no one in the Bolsheviks had foreseen the situation they were in. They had all believed um, that either the revolution would be defeated and capitalist relations would be restored, or that the revolution would spread to Europe and actually be fulfilled. In 1937, Trotsky wrote, having taken over the state, the party is able, certainly, to influence the development of society with a power inaccessible to it before. But in return, it submits itself to a 10 times greater influence from all other elements in society. It can, by the direct attack by hostile forces, be thrown out of power. Given a more drawn out tempo of development, it can degenerate internally while holding on to power. It is precisely this dialectic of the historical process that is not understood by those sectarian logicians who try to find in the decay of the Stalinist bureaucracy a crushing argument against Bolshevism. But Trotsky wrote this 10 years after Stalin's final consolidation of power. In the 1920s, Trotsky did not foresee the bureaucracy becoming a force independent of other classes, able to exert power in its own name. He continued to believe that the greatest danger was that a section of the bureaucracy would become a vehicle for the interests of a new capitalist class developing in the countryside, and that this class would carry out a counter-revolution and abolish socialized property relations. In other words, reintroduce private property as the basis for society. And this theoretical framework was to shape and limit his opposition um, in the years to come. The introduction of the new economic policy, which is called the NEP, in 1921, strained and exacerbated all these contradictions. Its purpose was to give Russia some breathing space in hopes of a new renewal of revolutionary activities internationally after the ravages of the Civil War. The NEP abolished grain requisitioning and replaced it with a tax in kind. 
This would allow the peasants to trade their own goods on the market, and they knew that this would also lead to a revival of capitalist relations in the countryside. But at the same time, they were hoping it would repair relations with the peasantry, hopefully provide a basis for the revival of industry, um, and give time to rebuild the working class as the basis for the revolution. Um, but the Bolsheviks were also well aware that this was a retreat that they had to take and encompassed inherent dangers. Its immediate results, though, were really to, um, it did give a respite to the revolution, but it also put it in much more of a bind and exacerbated the tensions. Um, it enriched the peasants and allowed the reintroduction of commodity production. A new class of wealthy people grew up in the cities called the net men. I mean, people like, in the midst of like hunger and like people were starving, um, you had these net men who were going around like with all the old trappings of wealth from the old society. Um, the bureaucracy was strengthened as well. The one class that did not benefit from the NEP was the working class, which was weakened not only in its own terms, but relative to all the other classes. Um, and the state that came to exist in this period could no longer genuinely be called a worker state, at least not um, in a straightforward way. At the end of 1922, Lenin described it as a workers and peasant state with bureaucratic distortions. Um, in other words, that a bureaucracy had grown up and that workers didn't actually directly run things. The Bolshevik party, which was now identical to the state, began to reflect the pressures of the different emerging class forces in post-revolutionary Russia. The faction fights within the party would increasingly begin to express these conflicts, um, although the participants were not often aware of it at the time. The net began to impact and shape the bureaucracy in new ways, and Chris Harmon, who wrote an essay called How the Russian Revolution Was Lost, um, describes it this way. Now many party members found themselves having to control society by coming to terms with the small trader, the petty capitalist, the kulak, which is wealthy peasants. They had to represent the interests of the worker state as against these elements, but not as in the past through direct physical confrontation. There had to be limited cooperation with them. Many parties seemed more influenced by this immediate and very tangible relationship with petty bourgeois elements than by their intangible ties with a weak and demoralized working class. Both Lenin and Trotsky recognized the danger that the growth of the bureaucracy represented and were eager to place curbs on it. But they also believed that the most dangerous thing at that point, given the situation they were in, um, would be a split in the party. Um, that's why they both approved a ban on factions within the party, um, a ban which Stalin would later mercilessly exploit in his struggle against Trotsky. Lenin saw the very thin stratum of old Bolsheviks, those who had built it through the period before the Russian Revolution, as the only thing holding things together. And while this was definitely, you know, a very, you know, real, a good assessment in some ways, um, at the same time it was an irresolvable contradiction, fearing the growth of the bureaucracy, but at the, at the same time relying on a thin stratum of old Bolsheviks to maintain things. It was an irresolvable contradiction, and one that would hamstring Trotsky's struggle, especially when deprived of Lenin's support and authority following his death in 1924. Nonetheless, in the last year of Lenin's life, he and Trotsky came much closer together politically and agreed on a joint fight against the bureaucracy, both in the state and within the highest ranks of the party, um, which had begun to merge um, quite a bit, most notably Stalin, who held the direct reins of power as general secretary. Um, and Lenin decided to wage a fight over Stalin's treatment of the party in Georgia. Lenin concluded that Stalin had abused his authority and denied Georgia its autonomy on the basis, on Stalin's part, arguing the need for centralization. Lenin saw in this a dangerous stepping over bounds in the name of bureaucratic privilege and a subjection of political principle 
in this case the right of nations to self-determination, to administrative expediency. He asked Trotsky to take up the defense of the Georgians at a Central Committee meeting in the spring of 1923 in preparation for the 12th Congress. His secretary told Trotsky that Lenin had, quote, prepared a bombshell to be exploded against Stalin. He asked Trotsky to vigorously pursue the case and to accept, quote, no rotting compromise. Stalin and his allies knew the attack was coming and they were in a very difficult position with Lenin and Trotsky, the two most influential leaders of the party, organized against them. Kamenev approached Trotsky in a posture of surrender and pleaded on Stalin's ha behalf to um, do something. Rather than pressing forward the fight, Trotsky accepted what was a rotting compromise in which Stalin promised to behave better and wrote a thesis condemning great Russian, Russian chauvinism, even though he had been the person carrying out great Russian chauvinism um, that they were attacking. Um, and there was to be no action taken against Stalin himself, and he didn't even apologize for his actions to the Georgians. Between these negotiations and the 12th Congress, Lenin suffered his last stroke and was incapacitated. He lived for another eight to 10 months, but um, he was never to come back into active political life. Having just, quote, surrendered, the developing triumphant ruling faction of Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev now feverishly prepared for the approaching Congress and worked to isolate Trotsky. Um, the question of Lenin's succession and the direction of the party after his death was the uppermost in their mind, and they wanted to fortify their hand. The party congress was a massive triumph for them. Trotsky agreed not to publish Lenin's views on the Georgian affair. In fact, he turned over Lenin's writings, and it was 33 years before members of the party were even made aware of Lenin's opinion on the question. Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev used the Congress as an opportunity to brand any opposition as counter-revolutionary. At this point, even within the Congress and party itself, to speak out was, considered, was to make you an element of the counter-revolution. When members of the Congress rose from the floor to defend inter-party democracy, Trotsky remained silent. He, spe he spoke only to issues of how to revive the industrial economy, issues that were very important but that seemed very remote and confusing to most delegates in the situation of 1923. And so Deutscher describes, thus slowly but inexorably, the circumstances which eventually led to Trotsky's defeat began to unfold and agglomerate. He missed the opportunity of confounding the triumvirs and discrediting Stalin. He let down his allies. He failed to act as Lenin's mouthpiece with the resolution Lenin had expected of him. He failed to support before the entire party the Georgians and the Ukrainians for whom he had stood up in the Politburo. He kept silent when the cry for inner party democracy rose from the floor. And he also strengthened the bureaucracy when he declared his unshaken solidarity with the Politburo, which was sort of the leading organization of the party, and the Central Committee. And he called on the rank and file to exercise self-restraint and discipline. He echoed the danger to which Lenin's death could expose the party. He also was concerned about a split in the party opening up a space for the counter-revolution and sought to preserve its unity. Um, and this was, this was an understandable reaction because counter-revolution still very much loomed over the heads um, of the revolution. But nonetheless, as Deutscher put it, in his eagerness to strengthen the party, he, he uh, weakened his own position in it. Trotsky's position weakened, the triumvirate moved to consolidate its position. As general secretary, Stalin had the power to remove and appoint officials because Democratic elected um, officials had been um, discarded and now there was the power of appointment. Um, and he now used this to remove officials sympathetic to Trotsky and to stack the ranks of the state and party with members who were loyal first and foremost to himself and secondarily to Zinoviev. 
Um, Lenin's death also should have provided Trotsky with an opportunity, but became an occasion for his further defeat. Many um, workers um, and party members saw Trotsky as equal, or at least only second to Lenin in stature and having led the Russian Revolution. And most of them expected him to take control of the party after Lenin's death. Lenin himself, concerned about the direction of the party, had warned in his last will and testament of the danger of Stalin's authority and advised that he be removed from the post of general secretary. But again, Trotsky compromised and was outmaneuvered. Um, over the wishes of Lenin's widow, Trotsky and the rest of the CC agreed, um, that the, uh, agreed that the will should not be published and delegates should not be made aware of its contents. Stalin was to remain as general secretary, Trotsky was isolated, and the triumvirate moved to consolidate their power. And this is when they began to build an iconic cult of Leninism, which had never existed before, and invested them with themselves with the authority of inheritance. And all of these conflicts can kind of look like you know, a bunch of intrigue, but they actually took place against the backdrop of developing class conflict. In the summer and fall of 1923, a wave of industrial unrest broke out in Moscow and Petrograd. At the same time, there was also unrest in the countryside and a growing class of kulaks or rich peasants who sought to enrich themselves um, and expand the scope of market relations. And in response, three currents emerged within the party and the bureaucracy itself, and these were the ones that were to come to clash in the 1920s. First, there was the left opposition, which was grouped around Trotsky, um, and they called for three things. First, planned industrial development. Um, they believed that without a revival of industry, the working class could not be renewed, and a material basis for socialism would not be possible. This must be achieved through a progressive tax on the peasants, and they argued sacrifices on the part of the workers, but they believed they had to be honest um, with workers about the need for that. Secondly, that this development must be accompanied by an increased workers' democracy to curb the bureaucratic tendencies in party and state. And third, that whatever they do, these measures could only be temporary and that the revolution must spread if it were to succeed. The left opposition most authentically represented um, genuine socialism, um, but it was beset by contradictions. The first was that the social class on which their program would be based, the working class, was the weakest of all the classes that had emerged from the NEP. Not only were they numerically weak, but politically they were atomized and alienated. Second, the call for democratization of the party threatened to give rise to an organized expression of both working class and peasant discontent. In other words, it would bring the subterranean class conflict developing in Russia to surface on terms not in the workers' favor, but actually in favor of a rising, um, rising class of wealthy peasants. Third, taxation of the rich peasant and industrial development would arouse the anger of precisely those elements that had benefited most from NEP against the Bolsheviks with little to offer the working class in return in order to strengthen our side. This was not a failure of the opposition's program, but a reflection of the social trends developing in the party and in Russia. This program would mean a break away from development based on the interests of the peasantry and towards industry on the basis of the working class. But the other two trends that were developing inside the party were opposed to this course. The first of these was the right grouped around Bukharin, and Bukharin's faction represented those who wished the uh, peasants to, quote, enrich yourselves. They represented those sections of the state and party that had, become, that had begun to cooperate with all the beneficiaries of the NEP. The second trend was the center grouped around Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev. This trend was actually marked by its lack of definition and program. 
It aligned with the right in these days, not because it advocated for the peasantry, but because it feared a confrontation that would disrupt the status quo. Um, similarly, it did not oppose the left's program of industrialization on any principled grounds. In fact, in 1928, they were to carry it out, but on a massive, grotesque, and brutal scale. Um, and so the center vacillated between the left and the right, um, but this lack of a program and lack of definition masked the fact that based in the bureaucracy, which was the one section of society that had real control and power, that this was the faction out of which a new ruling class would begin to define itself. The bureaucracy had risen above the different social classes, although it was not yet strong enough to conquer them completely, um, and it was loyal only to itself. And as Harmon describes, underlying the factional struggles of the 1920s is the process by which this social grouping shook off the heritage of the revolution to become a self-conscious class in its own right. In order to do this, it had to bring the state and the party it controlled in line with its own interests. And to do this, um, it did so with a whole series of confrontations with the remaining elements of authentic Bolshevism. The first of these confrontations was with the left opposition and the attack on Trotsky. New modes of political functioning developed within the party. Open political debate that had reigned supreme in the Bolsheviks was replaced by character assassination and invective. A tradition of honest reckoning with all political questions was replaced with a cult of Lenin. Against known was the new method of character assassination and falsification more viciously directed than against Trotsky. Although his stature in the revolution of 1917 had been equal to Lenin's, he had not actually joined the party until 1917, and prior to that, there had been serious differences between Lenin and Trotsky. The triumvirate now used this against him, digging up old quotes from old quarrels that he would not stand by that shocked many members of the party who had just joined in 1917 or after and had no idea of the party's history. Trotsky was accused of hostility to the peasantry, his personal character was attacked, his role in the October Revolution, of which he had been its organizer, was erased by Stalin. Even his theory of permanent revolution, which October, which October had been a vindication of and which Lenin himself fully adopted in April 1917, was turned into something sinister and opposed to Bolshevism. For a war-weary population, it connotated images of a permanent state of siege. The 1923 opposition, encompassing some of the finest leaders of the revolution, was crushed by the bureaucracy quite easily. Trotsky and other oppositionists maintained their struggle, but did so in a state of terrible isolation and siege. The second major confrontation expressed itself as a struggle within the bureaucracy, between Stalin, who controlled the centralized party and state apparatus, and Zinoviev, who was its official leader and also contained, controlled his own apparatus in Petrograd. Um, although Zinoviev was part of the bureaucracy, the very independence of his own party machine, even though he ran it just as undemocratically as Stalin ran the country itself, was a threat to the centralized state apparatus and therefore needed to be destroyed. In response, Zinoviev shifted course and allied himself and his followers with the Trotskyists and the united opposition of 1926 and 1927. But like the left opposition before it, Stalin was able to defeat this quite easily. He simply replaced all of Zinoviev's loyalists with his own people in Petrograd in literally a matter of weeks. Um, and throughout this period of factional struggle, which was decisive in forging the bureaucracy as a new, independent, and self-conscious class, Trotsky's role is contradictory and complex. His biographers across the board um, have noted that his opposition is beset by retreats and inconsistencies throughout this period. 
Um, I already described how he failed to carry out Lenin's fight against Stalin at the 12th Congress and also agreed to suppress Lenin's will. Following the defeat of the left opposition and Lenin's death, Trotsky seemed to retreat entirely from the struggle. He still attended meetings of the Politburo, but he went to them and read French novels and seemed utterly disinterested in the proceedings. Um, for over a year, he retreated from political matters to cultural affairs and science, which, by the way, produced a legacy of brilliant writings, including literature and revolution and problems of everyday life and a number of things, but nonetheless was a sort of rearguard struggle rather than taking on some of the main um, issues. While the fate of the Chinese Revolution was being decided, he stayed silent for almost a year, even though the defeat of the revolution was to have a profound impact, and Trotsky's analysis of the situation was correct and could have led to victory had it been implemented. And yet at the same time, he also began to put forward a trenchant critique of the bureaucracy. At every turn, he found himself at odds with the ruling, um, ruling clique. At every turn, he defended authentic Marxism against its distortion. As Stalin developed the theory of socialism in one country, Trotsky advocated a fierce um, and insistent internationalism. As Stalin rewrote the history of the Russian Revolution, Trotsky defended its aims and its legacy and analyzed how they were being distorted. Against the cult of Lenin, Trotsky drew out the genuine lessons of Bolshevism in all its successes and its mistakes. Against the attempt of the party to control art and culture, he spoke for cultural freedom and self-determination. Against the degradation of the working class on a daily basis, he fought for its spiritual and moral renewal. So how does one account for these inconsistencies? Um, and I think you have to say it cannot be attributed to any character flaw or a lack of will to fight. This is a man who fought till his death in 1940 in Mexico and watched his entire family be murdered um, by Stalin. So it certainly wasn't a lack of will to fight. Instead, I believe they flowed from a number of factors involving both his analysis and the difficulties and challenges of the situation itself. He believed that the main danger lay on the right and that the revolution could be overthrown and capitalism restored on the basis of the enriched peasantry. He saw Stalin's faction as veering between the left and the right, and therefore throughout this period, he believed that the bureaucracy could be pressured and reformed from within rather than needing a separate struggle directly against um, the new ruling bureaucracy. Secondly, he believed that the Bolshevik party and the state it controlled still represented, even in deformed and um, bureaucratized form, the gains of the revolution, and that their control of the means of production, the collectivized property, um, laid the basis for a transition to socialism. Given this, he placed the utmost importance in this period on remaining within and loyal to the party, even at the cost of his own voice. This discipline to an undemocratic and bureaucratized party machine hamstrung his ability to build an opposition and really has nothing to do with what genuine Bolshevism stands for. Most, in okay. Most importantly, the objective conditions were decisive. These conditions magnified every mistake and undermined every success. Within Russia, the working class had been flooded by new recruits from the countryside. Terrible discipline had been imposed and workers responded with alienation and apathy primarily. Collective politics had been eclipsed by the struggle for personal survival. Um, the Bolshevik party, too, had lost its cadre. These were the forces to which Trotsky would have had to turn in order to engage a real fight against the bureaucracy. But they did not exist, so he was reduced to carrying out a heroic, almost individual-seeming fight in an ever more narrow circle to preserve the traditions and ideas of authentic socialism in a society in which the actual material basis for it had disintegrated. 
As important was the isolation of the revolution internationally. The Bolsheviks had never believed that they could build socialism in one country, um, and so and they looked to the international revolution that remained a real possibility throughout the 1920s. I'm going to talk about two of them. Um, but these struggles had been defeated. The most important was in Germany, where the first wave of revolution had ended in defeat by 1920. But in 1922, a series of defensive struggles and the onset of a new economic crisis had put the question back on the agenda in 1923. But the German leaders, as well as those advising them in Russia, had grown hesitant as a result of past defeats. The leaders balked at the last moment, and the possibility was lost. Had revolution in Germany succeeded in 1923, the entire course of history, I believe, would have been quite different. The German Communist Party, like all those that formed in the wake of the Russian Revolution, was new and inexperienced. The Bolshevik cadres had been through the 1905 revolution. Through reaction and defeat and many smaller struggles, there was a large layer of comrades who had a tradition of political debate, independent assessment, and confidence in one another. The other communist parties of the new Comintern did not have that experience. This meant that too frequently they relied on the leaders in Russia for advice and did not develop their own independent judgment. This intervention from Russia was crucial in the early days. It was actually necessary to try to carry the revolution forward, and both Lenin and especially Trotsky were deeply involved in the early years of the Comintern. Um, but this relation and this relationship of the Russian party as teacher to other parties had a certain logic to it, um, but it also contained massive dangers that were to be exposed. As the bureaucracy began to dominate within the Russian party, the respect which the Bolsheviks had commanded in the Comintern increasingly became a demand for obedience. The Comintern itself began to degenerate in a process that mirrored the degeneration in Russia. The first massive defeat as a result was in China. The Bolsheviks had placed the utmost importance on the anti-colonial struggles in Russia. Um, but, yeah, in Russia. Um, I was going to try to cut something, but I can't. Um, but in the early 1920s, they had not yet defined the relationship between the struggles and that for socialism. Trotsky had always believed, this was his theory of permanent revolution, that anti-imperialist democratic struggles must be led by the working class and go over from bourgeois democratic tasks to working class revolution in one sort of process. Many of the Russian leaders, um, not having learned or absorbed the lessons of the Russian experience itself, believe that revolutions in colonial countries must first go through a phase of bourgeois development um, and then and capitalist development before socialist revolution was possible. This, quote, two-stage theory of revolution was to become the reigning ideology of the Comintern in decades to come, with devastating consequences to the third world. China was its first application. There were two forces developing in China, the nationalist Kuomintang, um, led by a section of the bourgeoisie, and the Chinese Communist Party. The Comintern directed the CCP, the Communist Party, to join and conciliate with the nationalist Kuomintang. Although the CCP leadership agreed with the need for a united fight, they also believed that they needed to maintain their own independent working class leadership and organization. And they continually balked at the demands of the Comintern, but inevitably gave up their own ideas in the name of discipline. The CCP came to lead a growing working class movement, and the Kuomintang became fearful and sought to curb it. First, they carried out an anti-communist coup, removing them from positions of leadership and demanding a list of the CCP's members. The CCP was alarmed and asked again to be allowed to cut their ties and to arm themselves in defense, but they were told again to cooperate and avoid conflict. There was a huge element of foreign policy needs, of course, dictating the course the Comintern advised. Russia wanted to maintain friendly relations with the Kuomintang. 
1927, the situation came to a head. In Shanghai, China's largest city and commercial center, the workers overthrew the old administration, took control of the city. Again, the CCP allowed the Comintern, appealed to the Comintern, to allow them to disentangle themselves from the Kuomintang and to give it lead to the greatest working class uprising that um, Asia had seen up until that point. Instead, the Comintern directed them to disarm and turn over Shanghai to the Kuomintang. This, in a spirit of confusion and discipline, they did. It was only three weeks later that the Kuomintang repaid their loyalty by ordering a massacre in which tens of thousands of communists and workers were slaughtered. A decade of revolutionary hopes that had opened with the victorious revolution in Russia of 1917 had ended in a bloody self-inflicted defeat. The Comintern had come full circle from an organizing center of international revolution to an instrument of counter-revolution in the service of the foreign policy dictates of the bureaucracy in Moscow. This defeat should have been a vindication of Trotsky's analysis and a serious blow to the bureaucracy in Russia. Instead, it strengthened Stalin's hands. The defeat of the 1920s led to a growing isolationism, and leaders of the party came to believe um, that they could not wait for the revolution to spread and must proceed on their own path. And this was a powerful impetus to Stalin's theory of socialism in one country. And these really, all these factors that I've described were what laid the basis for Stalin's counter-revolution, none of which was planned in advance. Stalin was improvising as he went along. The bureaucracy was still in the process of shaping itself and the fate of the revolution still remained in the balance. 1927 to 1928 was the decisive turning point. Initially, Stalin responded to a crisis of the NEP, where the wealthy peasants actually introduced a grain strike to force up prices. Um, and the state was first compelled to return to forced requisitioning of the wealthy peasants. Having challenged the kulaks, I'm going to skip the 30s, clearly. Um, having challenged the kulaks, they proceeded with ferocity along a course that was to lead to the collectivization of more than 25 million peasants. As the peasants resisted with all their might, the human cost was enormous. This was accompanied by the first five-year plan in industry, a massive pace of industrialization made possible by the destruction of the peasantry and the flood of new labor into the cities. I'm gonna take two extra. Workers, too, were driven to the physical limits. This required a quantitative change in the scale of repression, um, which was first directed against the political opposition. Trotsky, for the first time, ordered expulsions from the party and internal deportations. Trotsky himself was expelled in late 1927 and deported to Al Alma Alta in early 1928. This was the beginning of 13 years of exile in which Trotsky would be persecuted, slandered, and hunted down by Stalin's um, agents. With the opposition destroyed, repression was then used to force the pace of industrialization, most notably in the introduction of forced labor, um, which rose to um, about 5 million in 1933 and to 1935 and had been non-existent in 1928. Mass indiscriminate social terror became a permanent feature of the Stalinist regime. The transformation had been completed. The ruling bureaucracy, led by Stalin, had established itself as a new ruling class, rising on the backs of all other social classes that could have posed a challenge to its rule and liquidating all vestiges of the October Revolution. This assessment seems unarguable from today's vantage point with all the historical evidence. To deny that Stalin's regime was anything other than a new ruling class organized um, directly against the uh, interests of the majority would be a terrible abandonment of the most fundamental premises of Marxism. 
Um, but things were not so clear to Trotsky and his followers at the time. They were dealing with a completely new historical phenomenon, and Trotsky's analysis that Stalin's bloc represented a centrist current with no independent interests was highly disorienting to the opposition. Um, actually, when Stalin first moved against the uh, peasantry and argued for industrialization, many oppositions, ac oppositionists actually went over to the side of Stalin, believing that they were carrying out his program. They would later recoil in horror, and, and it, most of them ended up back in the prison camps and deported in the 1930s. Trotsky stood almost alone against both Stalin and the capitulators. While he believed that Stalin's turn represented a temporary left turn, he also analyzed the growth and degeneration of the bureaucracy, the lack of party democracy, and the exaggerated and barbaric scale on which Stalin was carrying out his turn. He also firmly continued to reject the idea that socialism could be built in one country. Um, his theory, though, that Russia was still a worker state, although a degenerated one deformed by the growth of the bureaucracy, could not make sense of the fundamental transformation that had occurred. He was going to revise it over and over again throughout his life, but never come to terms with the fact that the revolution had in fact been defeated and that there was nothing left to defend. Nonetheless, from 1927, 1927 on, he remained absolutely uncompromising in his opposition to Stalinism and carried the real legacy of the Russian Revolution on his shoulders, and thus by a tiny thread, maintained the continuity between a future generation and the real gains of the Russian Revolution. On the day that Trotsky was finally murdered by Stalin's assassin in 1940, he believed that he was doing the most important work of his life and he still retained an unshakable confidence in the potential of the working class to break the chains of exploitation and repression. Two, oppression, two decades that had seen the rise of Stalinism and fascism and the defeat of the first revol workers' revolution had not been able to shake that conviction. Those who did hold the view that the working class was incapable of transforming society, he argued had only witnessed the triumphs of Nazism and, and Stalinism. Their entire experience was one of political defeat. But Trotsky had lived through the revolution of 1917 and could not doubt the capacities that he had seen flourish in that year. In the last months of his life, he wrote, quote, in these years of worldwide reaction, we must proceed from the possibilities which the Russian proletariat revealed in 1917. The basic task of our epoch has not changed for the simple reason that it has not been solved. Marxists do not have the slightest right if disillusionment and fatigue are not considered rights to draw the conclusion that the proletariat has forfeited its revolutionary possibilities and must renounce all aspirations. 25 years in the scales of history, when it is a question of the most profound changes in economic and cultural systems, weigh less than an hour in a man's life. What good is the individual who, because of setbacks suffered in an hour or a day, renounces a goal he has set for himself on the basis of all the experience of his life? And that basic task, the, the, the fundamental transformation of our society, remains unsolved today, and thus remains the question of our epoch. Trotsky was justified in believing that he was doing the most important work of his life following the revolution, often in defeat. Um, in the scale of years or even decades, Trotsky's was a losing battle. But on the scale of revolutionary history, neither victory nor defeat have been assigned yet. Trotsky's role in preserving the continuity of genuine revolutionary socialism and the lessons learned at its first moment of victory is invaluable for those who continue this struggle today. It will be up to a new generation, as Trotsky wrote in his last will, to learn these lessons and to, quote, cleanse the world of all evil, oppression and violence, and enjoy it to the full.
The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.